All right, settle on down. Come on. First Corinthians, uh, you have it in your worship guide. You also have our booklet. Some of you have our booklet that you can also bring your Bible to church. That's right. You know, one of these things. You can bring your Bible. Uh, you have your, um, your device. We will also have a few things on the screen. First Corinthians, that is where we will be uh, today. And so make sure you find First Corinthians chapter 1. And we will be in verses 10 all the way through 17. Okay, uh, one scholar puts it like this, and this is kind of a, a stun quote, uh, especially for the church of Jesus Christ. He puts it like this, sin has the potential to make us better at war than we are at peace. Because of the sin that's in our lives, sins in the world, that we, it has the potential to make us better at war than we are at peace. That means we're better at fighting than we are at unity. Uh, there's not one of us in here that has experienced a conflict-free week, right? You know that boss that continued to hound you this week, right? That spouse that continued to hound you this week. Those siblings of yours that really got underneath your nerves, you know, those kinds of things. We know what it means to understand war and how war is sometimes a lot easier than peace. If we don't have it in our own lives, we know that uh, the talk, talking heads around us have been bantering in the political world. There has been a political or presidential debate. There's also been an Iowa caucus that has turned upside down. And then also, of course, the Senate impeachment trial. We've just heard it over and over and over. You're wrong and I'm right. You're wrong and you can go and you can, those types of things. At certain parts of your week, if you're just going to reflect, you have been the divisive one in the relationship. That you have been the argumentative one in the relationship. Potentially you have had or we have a critical spirit or that you have gossiped about someone. The fact is that sin has made us much better at war than we are at peace. So why all this disunity? Sin, of course, makes us better fighters than lovers. Sin makes divisions easier than unity. Sin makes it our struggle you know, a lot easier than simply embracing one another. I want us to look at our sin and say that we're probably, we are likely the one in the wrong in most of these cases. There's a lot of reasons for the divide. I mean, we are a small congregation in, a, you know, this part of town. And even in this room, there are things that divide us. Like there are some people that have seats on the right-hand side of the auditorium, always. And you are making yourself divided against, well, I guess this is the left-hand side, that other side. <clears throat> and there's some who are always on the right-hand side, and you are far superior than the people over here on the left-hand side. Right? So why do you keep sitting there? I don't know. It may just be habit, but there may just be, these are your people. There are some of us that root for different football teams. <clears throat> there are some of us in here that root for far superior football teams than, than others. And so it just happened. I just created a spark. Just by mentioning football team and that my football team is superior than yours, um, that you just, there was friction there. In that very instant, there it is. It's us against them, you against us. 
There are certain parts of the country that are better than others. There are certain parts of the world that may be better than others, and it's always us versus them. And so we know that everything is bigger and better in Texas, right? And so that's just the way, way it is. There are other things that divide us, not just where we sit on Sunday mornings, but some of us have graduated college, right? And we look down on others because of the degree that's on our wall. Some of us are, have flunked out of college, or maybe some of us have not even gone to a college. Any of these things will divide us and make us less similar than together. And so what is it that's going to unify us? Now, just before Jesus was crucified for our sins, he offered a very curious prayer. You find it in John chapter 17. And what he is praying for, and you guessed it, what he is praying for is unity. He's praying that the followers of Jesus Christ would be more unified than separate. He knew that unity would be really hard for us. And so that's why he created unity as a supernatural thing. Sin makes us better at war than peace. And Christ is trying to oppose that. So the, the church um, that we're looking at today is in the city of Corinth. Today, verse 10, we're actually going to start in the middle, or we're going to start the actual letter, what they call the body of the letter. And what Paul is going to make us aware of is that there really are divisions that have arisen, not in culture, right? The divisions that have happened are right here, somewhere between 50, 60, maybe 100 believers in the room, right, in the city of Corinth, and there are divisions among them already, and what Paul wants to do is he wants to press in and correct us. And he wants us to stand corrected. And so the very first thing that he comes out with is that you are divided. And I really want you to be unified. We heard last week um, that Christianity spread a lot through what we call church planting, where Paul would go from city to city to town to town and start different churches. Well, God decided to use Paul in an amazing way. We know that Paul was not a follower of Jesus in his early years. In fact, that even though he was very religious, he didn't fear God, he didn't love God. In fact, he persecuted Christians, he killed, he killed the early church. But Paul gets a visit from Jesus in which Jesus blinds him, sends him to solitary confinement and says, you have to follow me. And he said, yes, sir. And so he gets up out of his blind, solitary state confinement and he follows after Jesus and he obeys Jesus. And he turns into the first century church planter, town after town, city after city. And that's just what he does over and over and over. One day he ends up in Corinth. Corinth is, remember from last week, is about a hundred years established since the Roman rules. Corinth is an exciting city. Uh, it's full of wealth and upward mobility and competition. These people loved life. They loved food. They loved drink. They loved relationships. Sometimes all of those things way too much. Beyond all things, they really did love and want to be successful. Paul stays in Corinth for 18 months. And then after 18 months, he moves on and he does what he does. Well, after some years, after within his absence, he begins to hear reports. He begins to hear news from Corinth and it's not good. And all the reports that Paul is hearing for about the 
church of Corinth is that they have been divided. They're bickering. They're fighting among one another. And so what we have in our Bibles is the product of those complaints. The fact that those things, that there are, there are, there are reports about the, the dividing nature of the Corinthians, that's why he wrote this book. We're going to start in verse 10, 10 uh, through 17 today. And it's very simple, you're right? This first section of 1 Corinthians uh, 10 is simply that Paul is begging them not to have any divisions at all. So he says, no divisions at all. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. You see that? And so I'm appealing, I'm asking you, please, right, that all of you agree that you come together, that there would be no divisions among you. So that you would be, and here's the opposite of being divided, is that you would be, that you will be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. He begins, he begins this with an appeal. He's not looking at his authority as an apostle. That was last week. Instead, he's appealing to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming to them in the name of Jesus. He's not coming on his own prerogative. He's coming in the name of Jesus. We look at all the New Testament acts and also um, the other books in the New Testament. And we often hear that the name of Jesus is where all of the authority and all of the power, um, all the power lies. If you're reading through this uh, community Bible reading plan, some of us are reading the same passages every single day. We're going through Acts and in Acts 4 this week we heard this in verse 40. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and they charged them. And so the apostles were preaching and they were doing wonderful things. And so the, the authorities bring them, bring, them, bring them in and beat them and they charge them and they tell them, do not speak in the name of Jesus. So they beat them and they charge them. You cannot use this name because there is authority and there is a power in this name. And then they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. And so over and over, we see that our authority and our power does not lie in ourselves, but it lies in who? It lies lies in Jesus himself. Last week, we looked at this quote, and it has to do with this verse. This, this quote said this, that apostles are windows of God's design. Their vocation is to be inherently transparent, meaning that you could see through them. You're not seeing themselves, you're actually, they're transparent. They're able to see through them. They do not promote self, but provide an what? An uninterrupted view of Christ. And what we see in this quote and then also in this verse is that these transparent window panes is that we are to share Christ, that we are to share Jesus and Jesus alone. Everything that we see in Jesus' life, right? To be Christ-like is to, is, that's the new definition for our lives. Or the things that we see in his death in his crucifixion, we were actually able to let people see the uninterrupted view of what Christ is, not us. 
It is the gospel that saves us. It's the gospel um, that will get rid of our divisions because it is very, very important to us. Not only in verse 10, if you flip back in uh, 1 Corinthians, not only the very first verse of our, our passage, I appeal to you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, but there's also a bookend here in, in verse 17. So our full passage is from 10 to 17. In the first part you see, by the name of Jesus Christ. And in the last you see, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be unified or be emptied with its power, both to begin with and to end, there are these brackets that the name of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, and the centrality of of the gospel, this is what we are to be about. There should be no divisions. The brackets of his lordship and gospel centrality, that is what is supposed to define us over and over and over. But there are divisions in the church. There really are divisions within the church. This idea of divisions is another word for split. And if you've been around church context enough, you know of churches who split. This word schism, which is the, the, um, the original, it's on the domestic front, it means that a fishing net has been torn, right? Or a piece of cloth has been torn and it needs to be mended together. This is what it means to be split, to be shattered. One of the worst decisions Nicole and I made in the, our first year of marriage is that um, we attended a church for a very short while that had just experienced a church split. Um, there were different views on every side of the aisle. There's bad blood everywhere. There's bad language, uh, all types of things. Luckily, we were able to uh, dodge and miss all of the drama and the bloodbath, but that just is what it is. So we found ourselves attending this. So the church and the church leadership, they wondered, what should we do? And so the question was, well, we need to rename this place. And you would never believe what this church renamed themselves. Unity. Unity Church. I mean, that was a telltale sign from the very beginning. What is wrong with this place? And so we've been around churches and we understand that somehow, some way, there's just a seed of division that gets inside our minds and our hearts and it begins to eat away. And before long, this team is better than that team and this side is better than that side or this belief system is so much far better than that system. And so we just simply cannot have any divisions among you. There are divisions within the church. And what Paul is saying, and he is going to correct them for many things, but it is important to note that they divide, he is coming out first and the heaviest with this idea that there are divisions among you and it should not be. There is a clarification here though, is that not all unity means uniformity, okay? That even though he is calling us to be unified, that doesn't mean there needs to be an exactness. I know that you're a little um, interested in what that means at the, in, at the end of verse 10, that you should be of the same mind and the same judgment. But that same mind and that same judgment is this idea for unity. And if you pluck 10 and you pluck 17, the unity that needs to be there is that Christ is Lord and then also gospel centrality but he is in no way telling us that we need to be exact. 
So let me be clear that Paul is not asking us to be, to require us to be exactly the same. He is, rec- he is referring to us, to us, that we need to be unified in the main things, not the secondary issues. He can't mean uniformity because he spends the entire book doing what? Correcting them, telling them, hey, you need to get back into line, right? And then he also then goes on in verse uh, chapter 12 to say that there is a beauty in the diversity. And so he wants there to be different things and he wants there to be different flavors and he wants there to be different gifts to be expressed because part of the beauty is actually in our diversity. And so unity is something, but it doesn't mean exactly the same every single time so that we're all robots doing the same different thing. And so it's okay, y'all. It's all right to disagree. And for a lot of ways, this is one of the things that I love about this church is that we can raise the most important things up and say, this is what we believe. And then we're gonna have good spirited discussions about some of these secondary issues. But we don't all have to be unified. Take for instance, how we school our children. In this room right now, there are homeschoolers, woo woo, right? And then there are private schoolers woo woo, right? Go nights. And then there are, there are public schoolers, right? And if you, if we are not careful, we can see or we can proclaim that the way that we educate our kids is, is far superior to the other ways that people are educating their kids. The principle is to teach our children. The principle is to guide our children toward Christ-likeness. The method no matter what the method, should be left in with the parents. So that schooling should not divide us. We should hold up the principle that, hey, we need to teach our kids to, to love and to obey God, but the method should not matter. Or the way that we run our homes. There are some in here that have different views as far as whether you should go on ex- uh, elaborate vacations or not. You shouldn't be divided by that. Or the way that you manage your money. Or the way that you discipline your kids. Or what you do on Friday nights. Or da da da. I mean, just the, the, the idea, the principle is, is that we are to manage our household and manage it well. How we do it, sh- there should be a variance there or our worship styles. Worship styles are secondary issues. There are some in here that prefer the more traditional route. You are in a gym, right? You're not in a pew. And that doesn't make this setting diff- or wrong, right? Or right and the others wrong, but some prefer traditional routes. Other, they only, you only get excited about the Lord when you are at camp, right? I don't know why that is, but that's just, that's how it is. There are others that are hard rock, like Christian ballads, and that's the only way that you experience Jesus, that's okay. Some want to pick up hymnals, that's all right. Some prefer screens, that's okay. However, we all know the most superior way is the worship guide, right? That is every other route is ungodly. I know, anyway, but you understand. You understand the principle is worship God. Enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise. Lift up the name of Jesus over above all things. The method should not matter. Yes, there's unity, but that does not mean uniformity. And that includes a theological, having theological clarity. Unity does not mean that we should forego what we're calling theological clarity. The idea of tolerance 
has made its way not only into our society, but also into our churches, that we have to believe what everybody else believes. Unity is not absolute tolerance for all people of all theological perspectives and views. Unity does not mean that we must get rid of our convictions and all of our distinctives and all of our theological standards. Unity is something, but it's not that. Unity does not mean uh, that we have to abandon our biblical truths. Paul is not a weak individual. He is actually a combative individual. And a lot of times he's coming alongside and trying to correct the wrong theological understandings. Some of you have come through our starting point and some of you have come through our membership classes. If you haven't, um, if you haven't experienced these two places, you need to. Starting point's amazing. We just had a class last week and it was really, really good. We've got a membership a class coming up. But in these two classes, we want to make sure that we give away this concept, that at, Re at Redstone Church, we have two different views theologically. One is a closed-handed view of theology, and the second is an open-handed view of theology. What is in this hand is these are the types of truths that we will fight over, that we'll actually probably shed blood for, or even die for. These are the things that we will never, ever budge on. And yet there are some beliefs that, yes, we may disagree. Yes, we may, we may vehemently disagree, but it's not worth fighting for or, or dis, disunifying for. And so that is our stance here, that certain beliefs go in the closed hand and certain beliefs go into the open hand. The close-handed issues for us, and these are, I'm just gonna rattle off a few, are the authority of the scriptures. That the scriptures that we are holding and reading and preaching from, the authority of the scriptures, right, are both inspired and without error. It is in our statement of faith. This is what is in a closed hand, that our Bible is our final authority on all things. Or the person and work of Jesus, the salvation through Jesus and Jesus alone. That is in a closed hand. We will not budge over that. Does that mean that we are, so that means we will fracture unity if we disagree here. That salvation is by grace, grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We believe in heaven. We believe in hell. We believe that people are, are created in God's image and he creates them male and female. We will not budge on these things. This is what it means, right, to have theological clarity, right? But we will not, for the sake of unity, budge on those things. But then there are secondhand issues. And this is what is really happening here inside the First Corinthians, is that they are fighting about periphery issues. Our hope and issues is what your understanding of the prophetic gifts or the gifts of tongues and interpretation, right? We may disagree, but we're not gonna fight over those things. The idea on the open-handed is um, the, uh, just even we talked about worship styles, um, in the pack uh, in, uh, earlier on. We're not going to fight over that. When Jesus is going to come back, right, whether you are in this camp or that, we're just not going to fight for it because it's not that important. The primary thing for us, right, is to believe in Jesus's lordship, right, and the centrality of the gospel. But the secondary issues we really will not or we should not divide over, 
I love Redstone Church because of the honesty and the transparency that we have built into the ethos. That means you are welcome to, to disagree with us openly and honestly over whatever you want. And over our tenure of six years, there have been many discussions of disagreements of one thing after, a ne- after another. And yet time and time again, we continue to look at what is in the closed hand. And if all of our issues are over here, we have, we have put down our weapons. We've called each other brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. And we continue to worship together inside this space. And it has been a beautiful thing. So there have been no divisions among you, he says. And the second thing he says is the division happens over celebrity. May there not be any divisions, especially over celebrity. Verses 11 and 12 says this, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, right? Chloe's household, or or maybe her kids, maybe her servants, we don't know. But it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. The reason that we have 1 Corinthians is Chloe and her people, right? There has been a report, right, to Paul, and he is responding to this report. So so to understand all of 1 Corinthians is actually right here in verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Um, We've been been reading Tom Schreiner, who is a great New Testament um, uh, scholar. He says brothers and sisters here. This word can be both. Uh, So quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, and or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is another name for Peter. I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Celebrity. The nature of these divisions were that these people, the Corinthians, the quarreling, that they were picking sides. In this corner, I have weighing in at 135 pounds, you have Paul. Paul was the greatest missionary ever. He, he had all kinds of church planting and he was able to have all kinds of theological clarity. And so Paul, everybody, and so everybody swung to Paul's, uh, Paul's corner. And then you have Apollos. Apollos is an eloquent and a beautifully um, uh, wordsmith. He's able to do things with words that we've never able to have to her. And so you start hearing all of these wonderful things about Apollos and people start abandoning Paul and going to Apollos, right? And then in this corner, you have Cephas or Peter. Don't you remember people when Jesus says upon you, Peter, I will build my church. You will be the rock. And so people are like, you're the rock. That means that you must be in, I mean, you must be the most important person. So people leave Paul's camp and Apollo's camp and they're now at Peter's camp. And then there's some people like, well, I follow Jesus. And they're like, uh, well, he is the Messiah of the world. Maybe just maybe, but they're kind of doing this. And so even in this, Jesus only gets one-fourth of the vote in Corinth. This is how crazy these people are that they have split into teams, so much so that Paul, the founder, and Jesus are only getting half of the room altogether. Corinth was, in fact, a culture where they praised, praised people who were able to lead and people who were able to speak, and they were finding themselves ruptured at all of these places. Because we too, we love people who are able to speak and able to teach and able to lead and tell us what to do. In conservative radio, you have people like Ben Shapiro, right? Or Rush Limbaugh. And everybody like, that guy, he speaks the truth. 
And then on the other side, if you're a liberal, then you have people like Michael Moore or Ed Schultz or Mike Malloy who are speaking the truth. They're like, man, that guy, he's wonderful. And so you find yourselves divided over personalities or ideologies and you end up fighting about those things and you've forgotten Jesus altogether. Even inside the church today, there are some of you who are like, man, Tim Keller, he is the best. And there are some people who are like, man, John Piper, everything he says, it's unbelievable. And you're on this side, right? And so then you're like, oh, like these are the Bible guys. And then you're like the other side are like, yeah, but uh, you can't understand a word that he says. And so there's the, the practical guys. And so there are people who are coming around people like Andy Stanley or Craig Rochelle, like, hey, now he is speaking the truth because he's speaking in a language that I understand. And all of a sudden we're split in half or worse, split into force. They're community group people and then they're Sunday school people. And you end up splitting, right, in half. And over and over and over throughout the church, no matter what the topic is, we end up splitting over secondary issues. Is it wrong to have an opinion? No. Is it wrong to have a preference? No. The problem is elevating your personal, your opinion, your secondary matter over the lordship of Jesus Christ and the centrality of the gospel. That is the problem, is making your thing the only thing. And Paul is coming out strong and saying, that can not be. Practically with us, we know that the Corinthian church is one church, but likely would have little house churches everywhere. And likely there are these patron houses or there are these houses where like the people of Paul would gather together and the people of Apollos. Really practically is that um, we understand that these churches could be split among geographic or even socioeconomic but uh, as very practically, as we move forward in planting Redstone Church, Elizabethton and Johnson City, we must not divide over location or divide over personality or even divide over philosophy of ministry. That can not happen. We continue to lift the name of Jesus and let the practicalities happen on their own. Lastly, no division in Jesus. Paul is saying there are divisions among you, but there cannot be any division in Jesus. Verse 13 says this, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul is using rhetoric here and he's like, the obvious answer is no, no, no. And so there's no divisions in Jesus. So why would there be any divisions among you? He asked the first question, is, 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 Christ, is Christ divided? And this is a graphic illustration, a graphic illustration because later on in 1 Corinthians, he says that, that Christ, there's the body of, of God are in Christ Jesus. And so it's really here is this idea, this graphic illustration that Paul is saying that you are pulling Christ apart limb after limb after limb. You're making him divided. And is Christ divided at all? No, 
And so should you prepare, tear Jesus, uh, Jesus apart? No. And so this I, idea or this attitude or this world, Christian worldview is that you can't divide Jesus. You can't tear him apart. So why would you tear each other apart? So how can you divide Jesus's power? You can't. He's one. How would Jesus or why would Jesus have more preference over one over another? You can't. He is one. And so does Jesus divide himself over the poor and the needy versus the educated, right, and the influential? No, because Christ cannot be divided. Not only is Christ divided, but it was Paul crucified for you. Paul is going after himself here. He's showing a piece of humility here. Like, don't be in my camp. All the fourth of you, or even half of you who are in my camp, don't be in my camp. You're in the wrong camp. Because why? Because was Paul crucified for you? The obvious answer is no. The pastor or a preacher, no matter how gifted and talented they are, the minister of the gospel, no matter how many gifts they are, are not more important than the person of Jesus Christ. And it's answered right here. Can anyone be crucified for you? No. No matter how wonderful of a leader they are, you cannot be crucified for him. Paul is saying, I don't remember dying on the cross for your sins. That was not me up there. That was Jesus. I don't remember crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was not me, that was Jesus. I don't remember living a sinless life for you. That was not me, that was Jesus. I don't remember dying as a substitute for all of your sins so that the wrath of God fell upon me. That was not me, that was Jesus and Jesus alone. Paul says, that role does not belong to us as mere people. That role belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why we're singing the songs that we're singing today. To put all of our vision and all of our eyes on Jesus and the name of Jesus and trusting him fully and completely over and over and over again. You don't belong to a team. You don't belong to a minister. You belong if you follow after Jesus to Jesus and Jesus alone. Paul, nor any other human leader, is able to be crucified for your sins. And here is something for us. Are you putting a human leader, even a good one, in the place of Jesus in an unhealthy way? A way to practically ask this question is, do you name drop? Who do you quote? Who comes naturally coming out of your mouth over and over and over? What theologian, what author, what preacher comes coming out of your mouth above and more often than Jesus Christ himself. I'm worried, very worried about the celebrity culture, not in the sports world or the rock world. I'm worried about the celebrity culture in the Christian world because we have divided ourselves over popularity and giftedness. And we're attending conferences where we are going to hear from a name and we want to quote them, and we want to tweet them. The celebrity culture in modern day Christianity, I mean, may end up fracturing us even more than we already are. And so let it start here that you think about 
the next time that you name drop. Not that it's bad. I'm quoting people all the time, but be careful with your heart that you're not swayed to the fact that you are following after a personality or a style or a genre or a people group and not Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's why the last question is so very important. Not just crucified, but you were baptized in the name. Are you, were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Because the baptism is a place of initiation. This is a place of community. This is a place in which we all find our home here. We know this one's off, off, uh, off the table, right? But this one, these are your people groups. You know, the people that you are baptized into, this is your community. And he's like, even here, in a very fundamental way that you're baptized or immersed into, what are you immersed into? You're immersed into the name of Jesus and Jesus alone. They were obvious the divisions were among the people who were doing the baptizing. And so this association of the one that baptized you would actually give you a spiritual edge or give you priority over someone else. And so these people were saying, well, who baptized you? And they were like, oh, that's so unfortunate. I got baptized by this person. And Paul wants to remind us over and over again that in our baptism, we're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The person who's performing the baptism is nothing in the equation. Nothing. He is simply obedient to be there with you. But you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You were immersed where you died to sin and raised up in newness of new life. New life in the person that did the dunking? No. Raised to new life in Jesus Christ alone. Baptism played a prominent role in the early church because it was an outward ritual signifying the repentance from sin as well as the initiation into the Christian community. Baptism followed closely on the, hill, on the hills of conversion, meaning conversion and then baptism. Baptism is a word picture, a word picture that means repentance, that, re- that means death and then also new life. So you are first a believer. You come to know Jesus. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And throughout this, uh, the New Testament, one of the very next faith steps for you was for you to be baptized. So have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you been saved? And then has there been a gap? Has there been no step of obedience, a step of faith, a step toward baptism? There may be some in here that have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved and yet not taken that next faith step to be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus. The Great Commission tells us to go and to baptize. This is an essential piece of our faith step. So in conclusion, I've got a couple of application parts for us. First and foremost, let there be no divisions among you. Some of you are in here are leaders. And so to the leaders. If you're a leader in here, if you lead anything, lead a house, lead a business, lead a whatever, lead a classroom, to the leader in here, are you drawing authority and power from your name? Do you want to be smart enough, clever enough, available enough that it's your name that people are name dropping over and over because you're that significant or you're that important? Some of us are followers. Some contexts where 
leaders and some were followers. Are you persuaded to follow someone other than Christ Jesus? That may not be in a real salvation term. That may just be like, oh, I just align up with these people. And so you're finding yourself name dropping others way too often. Maybe this morning you need to recalibrate. Keep reading the books, right? Keep learning the lessons. And yet the person and the work of Jesus is who we name drop. And then lastly, to the church, that's us. That's us, corporately, because we stand corrected. This is a letter to us. It's easy to create subgroups here, right? Our community group structure is meant to like create little groups where, um, however, when we start finding ways in which their superiority over one or the other, we're in trouble. It's easy to create subgroups that cause splits where there's no unity, but instead there's a rending apart. Is there anything that exhibits the traits of a secular culture rather than Christ? Do you find yourself being a divisive person? Do you find yourself trying to sway other people to come to your side or to your ideology? Maybe just maybe you're more like the secular Corinthian rather than one who is underneath the rubric of Christ Jesus. So these are application questions for you to contemplate. Maybe just maybe you're in here and you have not been baptized. Maybe just practically, you know, you find yourself, right? And you're trying to be divisive even inside our church. Whatever you want to do, whether you want to take a step in faith or pray a prayer of repentance, uh, Nicole and I are going to be in in the prayer corner this morning. And so we'd love to pray for you. As we walk toward the table of remembrance, know that here in one minute, we're all going to rise And we're all going to take a step toward the table of remembrance because our unity is found not in ourselves. Our unity is found in the body given of Jesus Christ, but then also his blood shed for us. The church of God and the people of God have always been united under one thing. And the thing that we've been united about is around the table that Jesus Christ gave of his life for us. So let us stand and let us reflect on what we want or how we want to respond. Jesus Christ, we give you now this next portion of the service where we respond. Some of us need to respond in faith. We need to walk toward a prayer corner. We need to respond in taking our next step of faith Some of us need to respond by coming in unity toward the table and taking the unity or the the identity of Jesus, not the identity of ourselves. Some of us need to come to the table and then have an overflow of song where we sing loudly. So whether we respond, whether we take communion or in a minute when we sing, Lord, help it all be under your name and your name only. We ask this in your good name. Amen. So there's four men around the room and they are here to serve you communion at this time. If you want to take a step of faith, just know that we'll be, um, we'll be back in the corner waiting on you.